Funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee. The Railway Children. Episode 1 The Early Years. My name is Ursula Ledwood, and I'm on a journey to find out all about the railway let alone. Over the course of the series, we'll hear from local railway buffs about the railway's long legacy in the town and speak to current and past railway workers, many of whom come from families who've worked on the railway for generations. So join us on our journey. First stop, the 1800s. Barges for Coens, C-O-E-N-S, streaming down the River Shannon. Barges for Coens, streaming down the River Shannon. Barges for Coens. Coens had a depot on the banks of the River Shannon there where they took in all the kegs of beer and stout. The dawn of the railway changed not only the world of travel, but also the transport of goods. Local historian Gerald O'Brien tells us about travel and transport before the railway came to Athlone. Before we had a railway, I suppose, we were depending on a few different modes of transport. We were depending on stagecoaches, which we sometimes associate with cowboy films, but there were stagecoaches in Ireland. The, the biggest uh, provider of them was a man called Charles Biancani, an Italian man. But even before that, we had a stagecoach in Athlone run by a man called Mark Begg, who had his inn uh, at the... Uh, where the Sean's Bar is now. So that was where the first stagecoach went from Athlone to Dublin. Stagecoaches would have been quite okay for passengers and maybe for small amounts of goods. Uh, other goods were probably brought in and out of Athlone by boat and barge. So how did trains come into existence? We board an old steam train at the Great Southern Station in Athlone for a trip to Bangslow. It's an event organised by the Railway Preservation Society of Ireland. While making our way through the old-style carriages, we meet David, a young train enthusiast, with the answer to our burning question. Well, the steam train, the first one was designed in 1802 by George Stevenson uh, in Derby, and he wasn't given permission to make a proper railway to start, so he made a racing railway. And eventually in 18... 12, he was given permission to build a full-on railway from Liverpool to Manchester. And when he did that and he had finished it, he would have uh, one first-class coach and loads of third-class. And the third-class coaches were just wagons. And the first-class coach was basically a garden shed on wheels. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. And well, how did you develop an interest in the railway? I don't know. I can't remember. You just always liked them? I just like them. I just think they're interesting. Steam trains quickly took off as an exciting new mode of transport with a world of possibilities. It wasn't long before it made its way to the Emerald Isle. Cliff Flood from the Irish Steam Preservation Society in Strad Valley, County Leash, tells us about the beginning of the railway in Ireland. In Ireland, it started in 1834 with the Dublin and Kingstown Railway which has the re reputation of being the very first commuter railway in the whole world. Like the mighty oak from the little acorn, everything grew from that. We ended up with several thousand miles of railway around the country and still have a significant network. That was quite way ahead of its time. It was 
three years ahead of London having a commuter railway. They built the railway in pieces. Uh, it opened initially to, from Dublin to Mullingar, and then the biggest piece of railway ever opened in Ireland in one go was Mullingar through Athlone to Galway. There's something like 76 miles of it. In the early days, uh, the idea of bringing a railway to Athlone, railways were comparatively new in Ireland, but people would have been rather dubious about putting money into railways at that point. And uh, there was a big push then uh, by having public meetings called in the town by various different uh, railway companies, not just one but others came, and they would try and get people to agree to be shareholders. And when they got the support of people like Lord Castlemaine at Moy Drum, that would be a big plus for them. They'd also go to the shopkeepers and the businessmen and that, uh, bankers, and they, would, they tried to raise this kind of, the kind of money, necessary money. Unfortunately, the first couple of attempts failed, but eventually, uh, again, Lord Castlemaine was involved. Uh, they decided to support the idea of having a railway line from Dublin to Athlone, which was the initial thing, but then, of course, the companies would want to, once they got to Athlone, to move west and to go further. So by 1845, uh, the Midland Great Western Company had actually got royal assent that they could go ahead and open this line. There were all kinds of little, little strange things about these early railway lines. Uh, the, sometimes the landlords in bigger estates were able to arrange to have the railway pass their house and even have a little stop at their own uh, that they could inform the station in Athlone that they wanted to take the train to Dublin and they wouldn't even have to come into Athlone the train would stop at their place there was one such uh, halt at, at Balnehown Derek Kiernan from Athlone's Little Museum of Memories tells us about the laying of the tracks from Moat to Athlone Tracks to started, it was probably around 1849 when they started uh, the moat at Lone. Uh, there was 1,059 people employed on that on that project. And that went on there till the 18th of July in, in 1851 there when, the, when, the, when they had the, the white viaduct complete at that time. The first one to arrive in Athlone was the Midland Great Western. Uh, they were responsible, I think, for building the railway bridge over the, the um, Shannon. It was, they were arriving around 1850. There was a man called G.W. Hemans. He was the engineer in charge of these works. And he was responsible for building this bridge, which was 540 foot long, the White Bridge, that we call it now. And originally it had a 120 foot opening span. This bridge is one of the iconic features of Athlone. I think anyone who's familiar with the town is familiar with the White Bridge. And it uh, took less than 18 months to build it, which seems incredible when we look at it now, and to think that it has served all those years uh, as a, a railway bridge there. A famous son of Athlone, T.P. O'Connor, said that of all the sites he had seen in Europe, that he felt one of the most striking ones was the railway bridge over the Shannon at Athlone. So this was the bridge that went in in 1850. Tell us a little bit about the pillars. That was a major feat of work. It was at the time. Uh, the, all this ironwork was brought from England by boat and came up the Shannon by barge from Limerick. And these big uh, pillars were put down with... Um, compressed air. So it's kind of piled, an early example of pile driving that they now use for buildings. 
but this allowed them to finish the, the bridge in double quick time by using this pile driving method to uh, inject compressed air into them, get them to sink into the bed of the river and to find their groundings there. Otherwise, they probably would have had to leave them a long time to settle before they'd be sure that the railway line was going to be steady and uh, that. But they were able to do this and uh, this was something that was covered in all the engineering journals of the day as being you know, one of these uh, groundbreaking uh, feats by an, a railway engineer, as I say, the man at the time was G.W. Hemans. By 18th of July, 1851, it was about 10 o'clock at night when it was complete. There was a captain laughing. He was waiting there with a 200-ton train, locomotive number four, Venus. And he drove the train back and forth there several times, and he gave, he gave it the thumbs up. He was the the chief inspector for the, the the board of trade, he was Captain Laffin. The middle of that bridge, in the middle of the white viaduct then, it was uh, an open span that used to open to allow the, the tall boats through, along with the, the bridge here in Athlone there, the town bridge there, that used to open as well. That was decommissioned years and years back then, but if you took a closer look under the bridge there, all the gears and the cogs are still there, they just they don't use it anymore. And then when they put in all the new railway lines back 20 years back, it could never open again there, that bridge there, yeah. We used to walk it when we were young, and you could see the water down between your feet there, yeah, when you were crossing us. And then you get caught then by the, the inspector then, and you get hit with a fine then. What <laughs> you get fines? Oh, yeah, yeah, we used to get fined there, yeah. How much? We were, I was fined there £25 there years back. And £25, do you know roughly how much year that would have been? That was probably back in the 90s there, yeah. From walking across the viaduct yeah. on the railway track. Mm. Bringing the railway to us loan brought with it jobs for locals and great feats of engineering. But it wasn't without its problems. I suppose really Athlone was at the centre, in every way was at the centre of things and all of the railway companies were trying to move out from Dublin and get to the west of Ireland and get that kind of traffic going. So when the Midland Great Western came in 1850, they built their station originally and they wouldn't then allow the Great Southern Western to use the same railway station. It actually had very odd effects for passengers because for certain lines... They would sometimes arrive in Athlone by train and come to the Midland Grave Western on the Connacht side of Athlone. And no matter what the weather was like, they had to walk across the town and down to the Great Southern Station to get a train to bring them to their eventual destination. So that, you know, the two companies, it wasn't a healthy way of doing things. So that's why we have one railway station on the east side of Athlone and one on the west side. The one on the west side was the Midland Grave Western Railway and that was uh, built by a man, the architect was a man called J.S. Mulvaney. It's a very fine building and it was in use up to 1985 as the principal railway station for Athlone. In 1859 when the Great Southern and Western Railway came they built their own station on the east side of the town. There was always a lot of problems between the two railway stations because uh, the two companies were vying for business and what they decided to do uh, back in the 19th century it actually went to arbitration and they came up with an agreement that 65% of all passenger receipts 
and 55% of all goods receipts from the Athlone area would go to the Midland Great Western Railway and the Great Southern and Western would get the balance. So the Great Southern and Western weren't doing as well out of it all. But they, again, they were the second ones to arrive here. When the Midland Great Western Railway Station uh, opened in 1851, they had a problem because there was no road leading directly down to the station. Traffic would have gone around by the castle up through Main Street and High Street and O'Connell Street and Connett Street and back down by Magazine Road to meet, meet the railway station. So they did want to get land to accommodate the passengers coming up from the Midland Great Western Railway. And they appealed to the military authorities for a strip of land along by the river. And this was agreed to. Uh, the army, in, in turn, had to uh, be compensated in some way. So that resulted in what we call the Watergate, a lovely feature down on the accommodation road, being built for the army to give access out onto the water. And a small little wharf where they have uh, some boats now are moored, uh, some barges very often. That was built at the same time. And I think the wall of the military barracks probably dates to this period also. So they've got this strip of land between the barracks and the river and they built a road to accommodate the passengers. Uh, now they decided that they would call that road the Eglinton Road because the Earl of Eglinton was the Lord Lieutenant of the day. So they got his permission and they called it Eglinton Parade or Eglinton Road. But the locals, because of all that had gone on in the newspapers about the road to accommodate the passengers, called it the Accommodation Road. Uh, after the Free State was formed and they thought the Eglinton Road wasn't a very appropriate name for a road in Athlone, they decided that they would change it to Grace Road. And the, the Athlone Urban Council of the time changed the name uh, to Grace Road, but still the locals continue to call it the Accommodation Road. And the strange thing is, I suppose, that a lot of people who call it the Accommodation Road don't know why it was called the Accommodation Road, but it was called the Accommodation Road because it was built to accommodate the passengers, and that's exactly what it did. With a new, convenient way to get to and from Athlone, tourism became more popular in the area, which prompted both CIE and local businesses to create facilities to accommodate the influx of people to the town. It's very hard to quantify the effect that the, that the railway had, but we do know that the, that the hotels in the early days certainly uh, had transport to and from the stations, so they were obviously getting a lot of people coming by train. Uh, it, it cut down the travelling time, obviously, for people. Really, the travelling time that we know today Okay, it's improving bit by bit, but it, or even in, in uh, 1850, it wasn't taking a whole lot longer to go to Galway by train. Maybe, you know, 20 minutes more, 30 minutes more, but it was still a relatively quick journey. And uh, similarly for Dublin. So uh, it certainly helped the tourism. And then we did notice that in the Victorian times, uh, the companies that were running the trains also got involved in running uh, steamers on the Shannon. So this was to kind of an extra little bonus. If you went to Athlone by train, you could get a steamer up the Shannon or down the Shannon, perhaps down to Clonmacnoise or go up to the, the lakes. So this was all very positive for tourism. Steam trains were a relatively new invention in the 1850s. The Eulopile, or Hero Engine, from the first century AD, is considered the first recorded steam engine. 
while the first practical steam engine was patented in 1698. They were originally used for agriculture and industrial purposes, such as corn trashers and factory machinery, and even powering carnival rides such as carousels. The technology behind steam engines is identical to steam train engines in their workings, with the obvious difference that steam engines were mobile on the roads. During our trip to Stradbally to visit the Irish Steam Preservation Society, Cliff Fluid tells us how steam trains work. It needed coal to make a fire with which water was boiled to make steam and the steam was then directed into cylinders and the power generated in the cylinders was transmitted by rods to the wheels. Okay. That's and it in a nutshell. That's exactly it, I can understand. And then the wheels um, twirled round or exactly. rolled on. Yes. On the steam train, there would be different grades of, of jobs. Oh, yes. The top man was the, well, the locomotive inspector who would be responsible for uh, a good many drivers. The driver was the boss. Uh, if he saw a reason not to go, his word was absolute. He, he, uh, the responsibility was laid firmly at his door. Who was next? Next is the fireman, and the description is uh, fairly self-evident. He looked after the fire, he looked after the uh, level of the water in the boiler. You could uh, have too much, in which case uh, there were side effects you could do without. Likewise, if there wasn't enough water in the boiler, it could literally explode, and sadly that has happened. Okay. Very rarely in Ireland, thankfully, but uh, um, it's not unheard of in other countries. Okay, and who else would you have to help the train itself along? Well, the next man in turn is the guard, who rides somewhere near the back end of the train. And in the early days, he shared the duty of uh, operating the brake. And he also would convey the starting signal from the station staff to the engine men. And uh, again, he had the absolute right not to go if he felt it was unsafe. Didn't happen very often, but that was his, his right and his responsibility. Okay. The, there was only those three uh, in normal circumstances, but you could get trainees, for instance, uh, you could have a circumstance where a, tra a, a train was too heavy for one locomotive, so you'd have a second one with a second crew, and some long trains in the old days, uh, before the present day automatic brakes were invented, uh, you needed more than one guard to operate brakes at intervals along the train. I suppose each driver and each fireman knew their next destination and oh. how long? Oh yes, they worked to a timetable. Okay. And um, it would be their responsibility, so far as was possible with the equipment at their disposal, uh, <coughs> to run to time. So I'm sitting on the steam train. Is there a lot of noise? That depends on, uh, to an extent, on the weight of the train 
and the nature of the locomotive. Some of them are fairly quiet. Uh, some of them are uh, quite vociferous. Certainly, uh, compared to um, a motor car, there would be quite a deal more noise no going around. And bear in mind that the cab is usually open, mm. so uh, outside noise and noise from the rails uh, can uh, assail the engine crew. But it was part of the job. And what about smell? Well, there's that magic smell that a steam engine uh, generates, bearing in mind uh, the smoke from the fire, hot oil, steam, it's magic. <laughs> There's no other word for it. Eager to get a whiff of this magic for myself, I jump at the opportunity to see Rusty in action. Rusty is one of the narrow gauge steam trains on the grounds of the Cosby Estate, which is famous for hosting the annual electric picnic festival. This is a narrow gauge demonstration railway which started in 1969 in a very small way and uh, it's grown to its present extent. Grandchildren, grandmas, granddads, historians, fabulous. Cliff and his colleague Tommy give us a tour of the Society's prized possession. This is a 1949 steam locomotive built for Board Namona at Port Arlington and it brought her from the bogs into the same power station that the diesel engine worked at. Uh, but that's only a coincidence. Um, it was built specially to board Namona's uh, specifications, one of three, all of which thankfully have survived in preservation. So uh, it's really the pride and joy of the society, there's no other way of putting it. We commission it in time for Easter and then we run it uh, on uh, bank holiday Sundays and Mondays between Easter and October and if there's any event in the town or out in the estate here uh, we run in conjunction with that if we feel it's going to produce a crowd. Is there a bigger engine in this? Uh, well it's much more powerful, powerful and it is of course longer because of the nature of a steam engine it needs the boiler which is up here 
and then the cylinders, there's one this side and one on the other side. Down around here is fabulous to see this is called? It's, it's, it's the motion and the connecting rods uh, that connect the, um, the cylinder to, uh, to the wheels essentially. And, re and uh, basically it brings steam back around to operate this which in turn drives something down there which pushes uh, back and forth which goes into the cylinder. It all goes around the big circle. So the steam is all going around pushing the, yeah, the train Yeah, the cylinder goes down and pushes, push, basically pushes the whole thing around and keeps her going. And how many people would it take to drive this on your display? Uh, it has a crew of two called a driver and a fireman. So we can't go back any further, can we? Well, uh, yeah, we can it's a bit of a squeeze. Actually, I'll let you pass. Wow. This is fabulous. It's lovely and clean, isn't it? So the driver, what would the driver be? From this position here, um, near enough where you're standing, and uh, there's two levers top right. It's called the reverser, and it's basically your forward and reverse. Reverser here, regulator, which that's essentially the accelerator. And um, the fireman. The fireman stands here. He operates the brake, mechanical brake, and shows the coal in here. Oh wow! He hasn't got much room either, has he? Ah, uh, not much enough room to swing a shovel. Not much to swing a cat though. <laughs> Basically, you have to the rim of coal and keep shoving in, and you have to examine the fire bed as well to make sure you put the coal in the right place and clean it out. And yep. Okay. And then you have water in here, and the water bobs up and down, and it tells you how much water you need. And using these, called injectors, you uh, you put more water into the fire. Okay. That is absolutely fantastic. Before making our way back to Atlone, we're visited by Dick Brennan a permanent way worker with the Irish Steam Preservation Society, who tells us what is needed to make a track. First of all, rails, two rails, sleepers, and they're fastened down with P-screwed dog spikes, and the gauge has to be maintained, the levels have to be maintained, and the curvature has to be maintained. Uh, Dick, tell us, why is uh, the job called permanent ways? Well, originally they put on a temporary way, and then they built the permanent way. So hence the name permanent way, it's permanent fixture. When they use to build the railway nowadays, they use a narrow gauge system, like when they're building the Channel Tunnel or building the Crossrail in London. They've only got their tunnelling, so they have to have something to take away the spile and bring in the material. And the permanent way is a very important part. Without the permanent way, well, obviously you wouldn't have a railway. Now we know some of the early history, our next stop is the 1900s. Join us in the next episode of The Railway Children, when we will hear from the railway workers about their memories of the Midland Great Western Railway Station in Athlone. The Railway Children Presented by Ursula Ledwith Produced and edited by Amanda Gunning Sound engineer, Kyle McCallan. Music by the Behan family. The contributors to this episode were Mary O'Rourke, Garrod O'Brien, David Flannery, Derek Kiernan, and Cliff and Tommy from the Irish Steam Preservation Society. Special thanks to Richard Dunn, Kim McNamara, the Irish Steam Preservation Society, the Railway Preservation Society of Ireland, at Down Memory Lane, and Athlone Community Radio. Mm-hmm.
Funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television license fee.